Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor here at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours uh, in lockdown for the most part is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rich. Through the magic of a good, stable internet connection, I am able to stream from the fallout shelter <laughs> and... Uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be able to connect with all of our listeners and, and fans out there in cyberspace because, let's face it, it's it's me and the fam, and I got to talk to people that I'm not a blood relative of. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to get it started talking to our audience with a little something we like to call news or not. This is where there's just too many uh, news items that to cover in extensive discussion like detail, but we want to cover them. We want to get Tom's take, whether they are newsy or not. So let's get it started right away. Uh, first up here, we had some interesting news. Uh, some These are some of the announcements that were going to be coming out of the Game Developers Conference. Ordinarily not something we cover extensively here at Gestalt IT, but this one was interesting. As part of those announcements that would have happened at GDC, Google announced Cloud Firestore for game developers in Open Alpha. Firestore is a scalable NoSQL cloud database with multi-region availability, five nines of uptime, which I think is table stakes, uh, atomic transactions, robust offline support, and real-time listeners. Google is positioning this uh, as being able to save game states, uh, storing user-generated content, and to build as a caching layer on top of your existing game server for sharing your gameplay data. Tom, NoSQL for Google gamers, news or not? Um, hold on. Um, checking my watch. Okay. <laughs> so this will be dead in a month. Uh, this isn't news. Google's trying to kind of move into some kind of market and I don't understand. <laughs> Tom, they can't kill it until they put it in beta at least. So at least enjoy this open alpha. I think that's uh, what we have to all remember here. Uh, next up here, keeping with the cloud, Microsoft announced it will prioritize access to Azure services to first responders, emergency services, and critical infrastructure in the event of any capacity issues. And this is something that I think just a couple of months ago, we're like, these public clouds have all the capacity in the world. Turns out when everyone's online working remotely and using services, uh, maybe more of an issue. As part of this, Microsoft is working with local governments to ensure data centers are staffed and said they would adjust the offer of free cloud services to ensure they can support existing, aka paying customers. Microsoft has seen Teams daily active users double in just a matter of weeks and even saw outages of the service uh, as kind of Europe went online last week and they were kind of, uh, it seemed like for a little while they were struggling to meet demand here. So this announcement, Tom, prioritizing first responders, news or not? It's news because this is something that you should be doing anyway. I mean, I go back to my voice roots of a low latency queue. People who are more important get to go to the front of the line. They have limited resources. And when I say limited, meaning they can't just expand to take up the whole thing. But this is something you should do every day. This should not be a magical, oh, look, there's a pandemic and we let people jump in front of the line. If they're saving people's lives, they get a little leeway. Yeah, and uh, I remember Verizon a while ago uh, caught some flack for uh, uh, essentially over uh, like charging for roaming or overcharging for first responders for forest fires and that kind of stuff and not prioritizing that access. So nice to see at least, even if Microsoft should have been doing this already and all the cloud providers should have been doing this already, nice to see them at least acknowledging that it's happening now. 
All right, next up here, uh, Gartner announced it's canceling or rescheduling all of its events scheduled for April through August uh, as a result of COVID-19. Uh, and they're projecting $158 million uh, loss in Q2 revenue as a result. The company looks to keep all events after August on the calendar, including its flagship IT Expo scheduled for October. Uh, we will see they've put out the standard qualification that they're going to follow all um, you know, uh, best practices from the World Health Organization's recommendations coming out of there at that time. So uh, giving them some leeway if they have to move some stuff around after that point. Canceled events aren't exactly surprising news at this point. I think we've covered them uh, for the last couple weeks here on the rundown and probably going to uh, for in the foreseeable future. But is going through August news or not nah here, Tom? Is setting that that kind of after August, not clearing out the calendar news or not? Well, I think it's news mostly because Gartner is one of the companies that I would consider to be like, not, I would say they're mid tier. They're not like enormous 25,000 person conferences, but like this legitimately kind of puts it out there. They, Gartner runs things, you know, every other month. Mm -hmm. This is a signal that what they're hearing from their customers is, yeah, we're not gonna be able to go anywhere. So I kind of I, I I'm curious to see, you know, does this mean they're going to just launch into having more assets at IT Expo in October? I mean, I, I don't know. Now, granted, if they didn't have anything scheduled in July or August anyway, this is not that big of a stretch to just say we're not going to do anything in those months. Mm -hmm. Asterisk because we weren't going to do anything anyway. <laughs> so. Yeah, uh, and it will be, you know, we, we've been seeing the event landscape. Um, everyone's just trying to figure out where everything is going at this point. And uh, we have another story uh, kind of relating to that later on in the show. And we're looking forward to, to Stephen's take on that. Uh, before we get out of news or not, though, one last item. Uh, Juniper Networks continues to leverage their recent MIST Systems acquisition. It's been a year now, I believe, or a little bit over that uh, since they acquired MIST Systems. The company launched the MIST Premium Analytics Service. Uh, this offers visibility into networks and contextual location-based info on customers and employees. So kind of pairing a, a more traditional, um, you know, uh, uh, Wi-Fi analytics platform, maybe a little client-based stuff with uh, kind of that Bluetooth and, and location-based awareness there, which I think is interesting. The service pairs well with MIST's existing presence in the branch and retailed uh, uh, WLAN space and can provide customizable reports based on a better understanding of behavior, both on the network and physical space within a given location, which I think is an interesting uh, differentiator. Uh, but Tom, is this always going to be the way that Juniper was going to monetize MIST? And, you know, we kind of saw previews to this, maybe not as a service offering, but at some of their tech field day presentations, or is this more newsy than that, Tom? This is news because for all of you people out there that were shocked and amazed that Juniper was going to buy <laughs> uh, MIST and they were going to crater another wireless company and this isn't it, whatever. And I was sitting there going, hmm, there's more to this than meets the eye. Congratulations. Here's your transformer. <laughs> this is Juniper saying we have way more value in here. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is go watch any of Bob Friday's mobility field day presentations where he constantly talks about AI. He constantly talks about all the data that they're collecting. Anyone with half a brain can read between <laughs> the lines and say, if they have all this data, they have got to be able to do something with it. For those of you who want to rewind the clock, what, two or three years and go back to Cisco Tetration being built off the platform that was ACI and go, wow, I had no idea they were going to do this. You should slap yourselves with a wet fish because <laughs> you should have seen this coming. This uh, is exactly what Juniper want, needs to do with the, with the productization behind Mist that isn't just access points. Just make sure you sanitize yourself after slapping yourself with said fish. 
Uh, so yes. coming up with our discussion here, before we do that, I want to introduce our special guest here. Of course, he's the founder of Tech Field Day and Gestalt IT, the big boss man himself, Stephen Foskett. He's jumping on the line right now. Stephen, thanks for being here. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. It's a lot of fun to be part of the rundown. Uh, I always see you and Tom enjoying yourselves, uh, and so I thought I would crash the party. Yeah, make sure uh, we're getting the work done, uh, Stephen. I appreciate that. So uh, kind of our first story, um, I don't know if this was a shot out of the blue, but uh, surprising nonetheless, I think, to a lot of people. Uh, O'Reilly Media uh, President Laura Baldwin announced this week that the company was canceling all of its planned in-person events for 20, that, it, that it had on the calendar regardless of the year or time frame, and that it's closing that it's an in-person event business uh, entirely. So not just canceling events, not just rescheduling it. In-person events are done in O'Reilly, at least for the time being. Uh, the company is uh, proceeding with online events uh, be, and seeing those as becoming the new normal uh, in the technology sphere, citing a recent uh, Strata event that had 4,600 participants last week. While basically every event is getting canceled or moved online in 2020, I'm, I'm curious, Stephen and Tom, what are your perspectives on, you know, moving out of that business entirely? Are we going to see more companies taking this approach or was this unique to um, how O'Reilly can operate and their role really within the technology space? Well, I'll jump in first on that one since uh, I'm the special guest. Um, <laughs> and, and also because I know a thing or two about running events. I mean, this is a, you know, what we do uh, in addition to the Gestalt IT website is the Tech Field Day event series. Mm -hmm. And frankly, um, something that talking you know, with this Tom about this earlier, um, I am expecting this whole COVID crisis to basically provide the excuse for a lot of companies to exit the event business, because frankly, it's a challenging business, a very challenging business, especially if you're doing something uh, like a public wide open event. Um, you know, you, you, uh, we've got a lot of small, um, smaller industry events. Um, you know, now uh, it seemed for a while, like every IT company was having their own um, small event. And frankly, those events are really, really enjoyable. Um, I've loved going to um, some of these small scale events because it gives you a lot of access to the company. It gives you a chance to really get to know people, um, you know, meet with execs and, and, and everything. It's a great, fun event, especially in comparison to these giant events like, you know, the ones that we've been to recently um, where there's, you know, literally tens of thousands of people there. There's no community there at all. These mm -hmm. small events are great. They have so much great community. The problem is they don't pay the bills. Um, I have uh, been frequently in talking, you know, in conversation with the people that run these things, and basically they're giant money losers. Now, I don't know if O'Reilly's business was a giant money loser, but I do know that smaller industry events, it's really hard to make it work these days financially. And so a lot of companies have been looking for an excuse to get out of them, you know, with, uh, you know without having an egg on their face. Um, the O'Reilly thing, I think, really is part of that trend. Um, you know, again, I don't know their financials, but I will guess that it probably wasn't a financially um, uh, lucrative business or they wouldn't have gotten out of it. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's uh, really, um, well, upsetting about this O'Reilly situation is that they also apparently laid off the entire yeah. five of them. Um, and so those people... Um, what a heck of a time for them to be uh, losing their job. I mean, this is not exclusive, obviously, to O'Reilly as events people. There are literally tens of thousands, maybe millions of people um, it, who got laid off on that same day um, because of the uh, COVID crisis. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm not at all surprised to see them leaving the events business. I think that smaller events just are, are going to have a challenge going forward, you know, like you talked about with Gartner. Um, 
you know, and I think that the, you know, this COVID crisis is going to change us all forever in terms of uh, asking the core question, which is, can we do this online? And um, I think a lot of people's answer is going to be yes. Tom, anything from you? No, Stephen has a great perspective because, you know, of course, being the godfather of Tech Field Day, he's <laughs> he's been living this life for over a decade now. But from an end user perspective, I mean, this stinks, but this is not the the last straw falling out of the bucket. I think this is the snowflake that starts the avalanche of a lot of other conferences just deciding, you know what? We're done. We're going to deliver the content in a different way and try to engage people through other means um, because that way we don't have to fly planes everywhere. We don't have to deal with event catering and, and all that other mess. Um, it sucks. And it could have been that O'Reilly was literally relying on conferences in March and April to fund conferences in October and September. So one little domino getting kicked out of the, the pile means they can't make this work going forward. Um, it sucks for them. I'm sorry, uh, folks out there, if, if you need competent event staff, go find these O'Reilly people and hire them because they, they're more than capable of getting the job done. Uh, they just, they, they need something to plan now. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where the value equation comes for companies that, um, you know, are, are like Stephen, like you said, um, smaller events where you actually can foster community, where that value of that in-person meeting, um, uh, you know, really uh, makes the event, right? It's not, you know, I, I think there's still going to be, you know, after we're all out of quarantine or, or, or physical isolation or whatever you want to call it, um, there will still be trade shows and stuff like that because there's business negotiations going on there or something like that. But for these smaller shows, um, you know, how, how will communities kind of step up and, and what will come out of the necessity? You know, we, we've seen a, a ton of events moving to online only and, you know, uh, how we can develop community around those will be really interesting uh, to see, but uh, definitely surprising uh, going forward. Stephen, though, I want to talk about something next, about something near and dear to your heart, a little something we like to call storage. Have you heard of it? Oh, I have. I do love the storage. So uh, a company called Storage Labs uh, launched its own blockchain-based tardigrade decentralized cloud storage service. They've been fooling around with this decentralized storage stuff for a long time. I was part of a beta test where you could essentially like run a node on a laptop and stuff like that. But this is kind of their, hey, we're going to sell this to people now uh, offering. Uh, this offers 19 petabytes of available capacity using nodes run by individuals and organizations with about 3,000 users on the platform from its beta release. I don't know if I'm included in that, but uh, full disclosure, I may be included in that. Uploaded files are encrypted, then split into 80 fragments that are distributed over the nodes with only 29 pieces required to reconstruct files to prevent outages if something like a node goes down. Uh, kind of important. Uh, Tardigrade is S3 compliant, and according to co-founder Sean Wilkinson, said the service starts at about half the price of centralized cloud storage. Storage has been working on this for a while, like I said. Is there a, like a use case or a business case for decentralized approach or is this just, hey, I like blockchain, ergo, I'm going to use Tardigrade? Well, um, for, first, I think that uh, the StoreJ people would probably admit that um, this is an idea that has is a perennial idea in storage. <laughs> if you go to the Storage Developer Conference um, every year, uh, which is the nerdiest conference for storage people, <laughs> um, two thumbs up, um, better than cats. Um, I would honestly uh, say that this has been presented literally every single conference in one way or another. Mm -hmm. That being said, there's a, a lot of unique twists here. Um, number one, um, they seem to have actually done the work and done the math, which is great because a lot of folks haven't. Uh, number two, there's the cryptocurrency uh, angle to it. Um, 
you know, the, the blockchain angle to it, which again, uh, blockchain has been disappointing us now for a few years, um, <laughs> but it ought to work in some ways. You know what I mean? It ought to work in one way or another. Um, and, and frankly, um, you know, they've basically, th this is one of the first ones that I've seen where they actually put something together that is a thing. You know what I mean? It, it, there's been a lot of like, oh, we could do this, or we're working on this, or this is an open source project or something. This is a company that has put something together. They've gone through a process, like a beta process, and they're actually doing the thing. <laughs> and doing the thing is usually the hardest thing to get done. So um, frankly, I'm optimistic about it. Um, I like the the general architecture of it. Um, I like the concept. I've liked the concept forever. Um, I hope it works. I think one problem, you know, honestly, is uh, latency, um, you know, and, and the fact that you've got stuff distributed. Um, mm -hmm. But for certain file types, that'll be okay. Another problem um, is uh, redundancy. Uh, my good friend, uh, Chris Evans, wrote about this um, last year on his blog, and I do recommend looking uh, over at uh, architecting.it for uh, Chris's blog on this. Um, where he raises some questions, um, you know, is this enough? Um, you know, we'll see. Uh, but overall, you know, heck, why not? Uh, it's a good idea. It looks, it looks like a decent product. Um, plus, one more thing, Tardigrade. There's a quality name. Uh, I did log into it to check it out because, uh, I, like I said, I've been following them for a while, so I was excited to see that there was an actual product release. Um, and the best thing I can say that when you first log in is that it doesn't, look like this is like strung together and this is some like weird like uh like virtualized computer that you're you're you know vpning into or something like that it looks like a completely normal like s3 compliant oh i can just do all the like something i would do on you know amazon or i could do on wasabi or something like that the like they've they've also you know importantly as as important as the tech stack is on the back end it's really important for people coming at this and maybe being a little skeptical or maybe saying like okay will this work for my project or something like that and and having that sense of normalcy in the ui and in, and in that kind of environment i think is also really important well, that being said, though, I just want to remind you one more thing. Foskett's law of storage. <laughs> you should never trust anything that ha doesn't have a code base older than five years for enterprise production data. This is good to know. And uh, Tom, I think we have to say networking is cool, too. Um, we're not ignoring you. And we're going we're gonna to talk about some security next. Does that excite you? <laughs> All right, uh, coming up uh, next here, uh, Microsoft posted an advisory Monday that a previously undisclosed critical security flaw, my favorite kind, found in all supported versions of Windows, including Windows 10, is being exploited actively by attackers, and there's currently no patch. It's kind of the trifecta of exploits. The company says the vulnerability is found in how Windows handles and renders fonts, which brings it somehow even closer to my heart in terms of an attack vector. And victims can be tricked into opening a malicious document to let the attacker remotely run malware, such as ransomware or something like that, on a vulnerable device. It's not like there, there is no direct path to doing this, but it makes doing that kind of stuff a lot easier. Microsoft says it's working on a fix for hackers, uh, or excuse me, it's working on a fix uh, and that hackers are launching limited targeted attacks. So this isn't necessarily something broad uh, and, and sweeping. Uh, but they didn't say who's actually launching the attack or specifically what scale, which is a little worrying. Uh, Windows 7 is uh, also affected and only enterprise users with extended security support will receive patches and they're expected to land on ne next patch Tuesday, April 14th, which if by my calendar is a long way away. Tom, even with a limited ability to do harm, an actively exploited vulnerability that affects all versions of Windows, real bad, right? Just everyone who's a bad thing and evil, we weren't kidding. See? <laughs> See? Uh, here's the deal. 
this is an active exploit that it can be manipulated in a variety of ways and it's present in all versions of windows and it's not present in a file it's present present in a rendering subsystem that's bad so yes microsoft's got to get this patch out the door we've got to get this thing patched because guess what now that we know about it and now that we know that people are actively exploiting it you know what that means you have a giant target painted on your back in and it's the the words are written in a mixture of wingdings and uh, Times New Roman, and especially saying exploit here. Here's what you need to do: just dust off um, all your DOS install disks, uh, get those spun up. You're safe there. There's no there's no rendering there. Um, but yeah, where, um, a little, where are you going to find a floppy drive? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to chain it. I'm going to go uh, USB C to USB A to serial port and or to parallel port, and I think uh, I think we'll be okay. We'll be in dongle heaven. Uh, and finally here, I, I, I wanted to, to finish up here. This was uh, kind of a combination of two different stories, which I thought were interesting approaches um, to how you know technology is being used um, in the midst of this uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic outbreak here that you know could be a little scary, but that there are a lot of people doing some good uh, or trying to do some good. Um, the first part is that IBM announced that they're helping to launch the COVID-19 High Performance Compute Consortium. They'll coordinate uh, with over 330 petaflops of computing power to researchers working on COVID-19. Members include uh, the White House Office of Science and Technology, uh, the U.S. Department of Energy, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and all of the big national labs that you can think of, MIT, like all the big heavyweights when you come to like major computing centers in the United States where, you know, there's the, there's the big supercomputers. Uh, the consortium will evaluate proposals and prioritize resources based on the most immediate impact, providing 16 systems with a combined 775,000 processor cores and 34,000 GPUs. Sounds impressive, right? But... The Folding at Home project announced it was turning its distributed protein folding network to COVID-19 research as well. The project has seen a 1,200% increase in contributors over the past two weeks with 400,000 new machines on board. Folding at Home can now output up to 470 petaflops across its network. Obviously, it's much more targeted to one specific thing, protein folding. It's distributed, so that's like the peak performance they can get. They're not always going to get that. However, clearly this crisis uh, could use as much computing power as possible. Uh, I'm curious, uh, Tom, Stephen, uh, Tom, we'll start with you. Which is the more impressive number here? 16 centers with uh, uh, 330 petaflops or distributed network with 470 petaflops? Well, you said network, so obviously that, that's my <laughs> thing. Uh, you know, I, I've been a fan of SETI at home and folding at home since, God, what are we on, like the late 90s, early 2000s? The reason why is because when you can take something of this scale and you can break it down, I mean, think about it. This is basically what cloud computing was built to do. Mm -hmm. So being able to do a lot over a very wide scale means that if someone falls out for some reason or if something happens or like I saw something earlier uh, this week where VMware is handing out uh, um, VMs, uh, uh, the uh, image to boot this up and, and actually join like a folding at home cloud for, for combating uh, COVID-19. That's huge. You don't mm -hmm. have to rely on the benefactor of a large university or something. You can do this. I like that. <laughs> Steven? Well, um, I love the concept, um, but my concern is, um, well, I'm not a molecular virologist or a computational biologist or whatever, but mm -hmm. um, I, I worry that a lot of the things that are happening right now are well-meaning people doing well-meaning things that may not perhaps have the result that they want. 
Um, and so I love the idea. I would love more to hear what they're going to do with this thing. Um, I think, you know, not to throw any shade on this particular project, but I got to say, um, I'm very skeptical right now when people are saying you can contribute to solve this problem by doing X, because I'm just not sure. Um, honestly, folding at home are great. I've worked with the, you know, with it myself. I've run, run my stuff through it for a long time. And, um, and I think, feel like they're, they're, they're a good group of people with a, with a, with a good idea, but, um, is it going to help? I don't know. Yeah. It, I think part of the problem is, you know, folding at home, like you said, Tom has been around for, for quite a, a, a number of years. I mean, I remember running it, I think it was on my PS3. Uh, you could run uh, a client of that, uh, going all the way back there. And yeah, I, I do wish that, and, and maybe they do. I, I, I was looking through the website, kind of researching the story just to make sure I, I had an understanding, uh, at least basically of, you know, what the benefits could be, what, what some of the outcomes would be. And it would be nice if they had like a, Hey, here's what we did. Here's like our, our list of academic papers or something like that, that we've, uh, that we've had there. And maybe I just didn't dig deep enough into the site. And if I, if I didn't, please, um, hit me up at Mr. Anthropology on Twitter. Let me know where those are at. I would love to see those. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think seeing that now they did say that, um, you know, they've already, because essentially what they're doing with the, the protein folding is they're looking at how a different, uh, uh, you know, possible therapeutic approaches could affect the protein structures in COVID-19, which could possibly lead to some treatments down the road and stuff like that. And I want to say that they've already identified 77 potential ones that, you know, would maybe warrant further investigation. Uh, we will see certainly, um, the, uh, you know, the IBM consortium uh, like they said, it's going to be focused on what can have the most impact. It's, you know, um, you have like academic researchers purposely, you know, wanting to use those as opposed to something a little bit more broader based than folding at home. Either way, I mean, certainly a good thing. I don't think anyone's computing power is going to waste, um, you know, whether whether the money you would spend on electricity for that would be better spent, you know, donating to an organization that's doing relief efforts. You know, that's a that's another question, I think, certainly. Um, but, you know, kind of across, you know, from computing to uh, the the 3D printing crowd to people, um, you know, trying to do um, just even, um, you know, sew face masks and stuff like that. There seems to be no lack of uh, desire to want to try and help out at this time, which I think uh, is encouraging for humanity in general. Also encouraging for humanity in general, having Tom Hollingsworth and Stephen Foskett on the Gestalt IT Rundown. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, Tom, where can people find more of your great stuff if they're so inclined? Oh, well, you can check out the usual spots. Um, Twitter, of course, at Networking Nerd. There's a lot more active discussion going on there. Um, you can also check out uh, gestaltit.com. Just search for Tom Hollingsworth. I've got a lot of articles that are coming up around IoT security and a bunch of other topics. Um, there's going to be some good content coming out, mostly because uh, I seem to have a little bit more writing time on my hands now. <laughs> and uh, uh, Stephen, where can people find more of your work if uh, they're so inclined? Well, um, I always say uh, go to gestaltit.com or blog.foskets.net or techfieldday.com. But frankly, I haven't been contributing too much lately because I've been um, being Mr. Businessman. So um, in the interest of nerdiness, you mentioned attaching weird dongles to each other. Look up my pal Basic Integer on Twitter. Um, he is uh, the guy who hooks random stuff up to the iOS, uh, to iOS devices. And uh, honestly, everyone listening will enjoy his videos. 
All right, so make sure you check that out. And you can find me, uh, Gestalt IT, and also on Twitter, like I said, at Mr. Anthropology, MR Anthropology. And hit me up with those academic folding at home papers. Would love to see those. We'll be back next Wednesday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern time, running down the IT news of the week. Until that time, for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for Stephen Foskett, for all of the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.